I'd like to talk this morning about wisdom, compassion, and courage. This is my first public appearance since being on retreat for about five weeks. I was thinking about the theme that I was uh, drawn to present this morning. And I want to connect it in some way with the uh, coming of the spring. Because in many ways, the traditional teaching, the traditional teachings are often presented in terms of developing wisdom on the one hand and compassion on the other. It's sometimes said that the two wings of the Dharma, as if the Dharma is a bird that flies, the two wings are wisdom and compassion. We really have to uh, develop in both of them. I love, I love that image. It's always, um, as it were, taken me away when I've heard it. And I, I think that it's helpful in terms of the spring to think of this teaching about wisdom and compassion as really offering a basic orientation or reorientation or a way of seeing where we are in our practice. And one way is to ask, am I stronger in one or the other, or where do I need to develop more in wisdom or compassion, or maybe a lot in both. It depends. We'll have, but, but there's a way in which I'd invite you to hear the talk and to uh, ask yourself, where might I develop and where might I develop further? And I'm going to be adding a third aspect of development, which is, in a way, what lies between the two wings. If there are two wings in a bird, a bird needs a body. And I want to talk some about that third aspect as having to do with courage. And we're really manifesting in the world. And so that's a little bit of a different uh, twist or take on the, on the traditional way of presenting. So here we are entering into spring. Um, I love having just done, I did about a five-week retreat, and I love doing that right before the spring comes. It's a way that it's really, it's a, it's a wonderful time. If you have the time now to um, do a lot of practice or take a few days just to move away from the, uh, from the busyness. I imagine that around here, people are just as busy as in Berkeley and Oakland. I imagine. I was really busy before I began this retreat. It was really, it's wonderful just to do nothing. Sometimes being on retreat, you know, I um, enter my little room. I was at Spirit Rock and I, and I say, I wonder if there are any telephone messages. <laughs> and uh, you know how that is. It's like mm, that constant uh, repetition of uh, stimuli and things to do. And I often um, think that if people were really honest, they are not really interested as much in spiritual awakening as in completing their to-do list. Um, you have to ask yourself, maybe they're the same thing, I don't know. Uh, you have to ask yourself, this is what Thomas Merton said uh, about 40 years ago, the great Christian contemplative. There is a pervasive form of violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs overwork. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many 
demands to commit oneself to too many people, to want to help everyone and everything, is to succumb to violence. This frenzy kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. He wrote that in 1960. And guess which direction things have gone since then. So here it is, the spring, things are coming. We can really look in a fresh way, and sometimes that takes getting away from that frenzy that Merton talked about and getting away from the busyness, um, getting away from the tiredness that many of us have. And so I think it's really important, if you have time, this is a wonderful time to go away, to let go of some of the things, and really to open to a kind of... uh, reorientation, restoration, rebirth, uh, remembering of what's important to ourselves. And I think we, we do that just in a way by, by coming here, you know. Um, one thing I've discovered since I came back is that the, um, the NCAA basketball tournament's happening, so you could be watching that right now, and you're not. Maybe you're thinking about it, some of you, but maybe not. So anyway, here we, some, we take this time to say, this is important for me, to, to sit quietly, to be with my own experience and to develop, really it's to develop further in wisdom and compassion. So I want to talk some about wisdom, some about compassion, and then some about courage, and then leave some time uh, open for discussion together. Maybe, maybe my hope is about 10 or 15 minutes at the end. So wisdom is often talked about as the development of clear seeing and particularly clear seeing into that which brings about suffering or that which brings about freedom. And the core teaching which presents, in a very simple way, the Buddha's understanding of the roots of suffering and the roots of freedom is the four, so the so-called four noble truths, which are the truth that there is indeed suffering, the truth that there is a core root of suffering, the truth that it's possible to come to peace and come to uh, a release of suffering, and fourthly, a practical path that gives very, very simple, direct means to work with suffering and to transform suffering and to come to to that greater peace. And that's often taken to be the core wisdom teaching of Buddhism, the core wisdom teaching of of this tradition. And it's it's really central to all the different manifestations of Buddhism. About four or five years ago, I was invited to be um, a co-facilitator for a community that was developing, a Buddhist community that was developing in New Mexico. It was a really interesting uh, project that was developing something like a meditative retirement home. It was interesting. It was the, the people were saying, people who have been meditating are definitely getting older. Some of them, and, and at some point, there's going to be a need for Buddhist retirement places <laughs> or meditative retirement places where, you know, 
So you don't play, what, Parcheesi all day or whatever, <laughs> or cards or whatever. So, and they also had the notion of combining that uh, with offering training for working with uh, illness and death and dying in a, in a contemplative way. It's a wonderful project. Um, one of the issues was that they had gathered people together who were from different Buddhist traditions. And they uh, invited, and there, there were differences of practice and differences of methods. So they brought myself and another person there to help facilitate. And one of the things that we did almost immediately was that we found there, that there was indeed a common wisdom teaching that could unify the people there for their work, for their really important work. And that was the teaching of the four truths, of the four noble truths. So I want to talk a little bit about those as the core wisdom teaching and relate it to our practice, because in a way, what our, our, core, our core wisdom practice is mindfulness practice, that we, we practice learning to see clearly in the present moment, not because we have some fetish of the present moment. A lot of animals live very interestingly in the present moment. And we're not necessarily trying to be like them, but we're, we recognize that when we attend to the present moment, we have a way of seeing what's happening and seeing a lot of what's beneath the surface, seeing where we're confused, seeing where we're actually suffering but don't want to feel it, seeing what our thought patterns are, seeing what our repetitive uh, patterns of mind and heart are. When I, when I first started meditating, one of the things that I discovered, first of all, I, I think I started meditating a long time ago, and I actually didn't know what country I wanted to live in, which naturally presented itself as a lively thing to think about during meditation. And, and so, guess what I did during meditation? I, you know, should I live in this country or this country? <laughs> so then, you know, I would start... In, out, yeah, in, out, and then I, this country, country A, country B, 30 minutes go by, ah, oh, back to the breath. <laughs> and so I found, you know, I could see how active it was. I, one of the other things I found, when I wasn't thinking about country A or country B, I, all, I was um, planning the future. You know, I come from a kind of a family of planners. My sister actually got a, a master's degree in planning. <laughs> you can get degrees in planning. Some of, some of us don't need them. Uh, so what I found was that uh, I was an incessant planner, and this is part of what the mindfulness is, part of what the wisdom is, uh, teachings are. We see what's there. I would, I would um, sit there, and I had, let's say I was uh, like a student at the time, and I would have like a report to do in two days. Okay, and I had it pretty much under control and I would rehearse it like, I don't know, a hundred times. You know, and it really wasn't necessary, but there obviously was some kind of fear and insecurity. I would, you know, later conclude five or 10 years later. Uh, that was driving it, right? That's what we do. And I was said. My God, I didn't realize I planned so much. I spent, and because it, it wasn't just the report, it was what's going to happen here, what's going to happen here. And I would just rehearse and rehearse and plan and plan. I said, you know, a hundred times is really not necessary. 
25 would be quite adequate. <laughs> you know, and uh, what will I do with all that extra time from the, the 75 planning sessions? So, so that's what we do really with the, uh, with the mindfulness. We just see those patterns. And when we do retreats, we get to see the patterns in much more depth. In a way, we become um, experts in our patterns of heart and mind and body. And this is, uh, we might think that we're, oh, I'm not attending to the breath, but when we're not attending to the breath, if we keep coming back and seeing what's there, what we're doing is we're really becoming experts on the ways our minds work. And what the four truths teach us is that it's really important to look for particular kinds of experiences when we do our mindfulness practice that it's really important to look for where we're suffering. A lot of times we don't want to face our suffering. We don't want to face our, our grief or our fear or our sadness. We don't want to face um, the, the knee pain. We don't want to look at physical pain. A lot of what's most important and what's really taught in this first truth is that, is that it's possible to open up you know, in a way which is not forcing it to what's difficult, to what's painful. No, not to hide. For a lot of people, it's a revelation. My suffering is workable. I don't have to hide from it. I don't have to pretend. You know, this is, this is one of the inspirations of practice, that we can open to suffering. We don't do that as a society very well. You know? We don't do that. We're not really trained to do that well. So this is one of the powerful learnings in a wisdom way that there is suffering and that it's workable. And what we do with the second truth is that we look carefully at the patterns which cause suffering. We look very carefully at our emotional patterns, our bodily patterns, our mental patterns, and we see, okay, which of these patterns are contributing to fear or contributing to self-judgment or contributing to creating some self-image that is very precarious. It's another thing that people learn in, in meditation is just the, the tremendous amount of self-images that we carry around. And so we look at that and we, we discover the core of the second truth is that the deepest cause of suffering is a kind of compulsive grasping after some kind of thought, some kind of view, some kind of experience, some kind of way that things have to be. And we study how much we do that. And we all do that a lot. You know, we grasp after views. We grasp after um, pleasant experiences. We grasp after certain experiences. We grasp after having things be my way. And this does cause suffering. And we're invited to study that because what's really invited is linked with the third truth. What's really invited is that it's possible to, um, to let go where we're grasping and to be with phenomena in a different way, to see with that which causes suffering and to somehow let go of the grasping. To not... It doesn't mean that we don't have views, but we don't grasp after them. It doesn't mean that we um, don't do things which 
support ourselves, but we're very, we can look more carefully into the self-image. And we come to a kind of peace in that way because we're not continually trying to control things quite in the same way. And we come to see really the, the more and more the deep, luminous quality of who we are. That when we let go of the grasping more and more, there comes to be more of a, a luminous, heart-filled quality of being that comes to more and more to pervade us, to pervade our being. This is what the Buddha said about that deeper nature, which is really connected with the third truth. Luminous is this mind, is this heart, brightly shining, but it is colored by the grasping that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so they do not cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous are the mind and heart, brightly shining, free of the grasping that visit it. This those who practice really understand. So for them, there is cultivation of mind and heart. And that cultivation is really done in the fourth truth, which is the truth of this very practical, workable path of practice. It's really, uh, what I really love is that it's basically telling us life is workable and that we really can grow, really can come to understanding, we really can open up our hearts and that they're practical means for doing it. I think that's why so many of us are attracted here because it's very practical, it's very down to earth. We don't sit around reading books about emptiness and the luminous mind and talking about it and saying how wonderful it is. Well, maybe some of us do sometimes, but, but we, we actually ground all this in direct practice. And we keep coming back to that. And we try to make of our lives more and more that our whole lives become practice, more and more and more. You know, it doesn't mean being rigid and you know, serious all the time, because it, it can be very, very light and, and filled with uh, joy. But it's, we, we come to find ways that my, my practice can be right there. I can have my practice more and more inform my work, inform my relationships, inform my being a citizen, a community member, and so forth. My creativity all gets uh, unified. But we know that sometimes wisdom by itself can become overly dry or distanced or cerebral. And so this is where the emphasis on the heart comes in, the emphasis on compassion, the emphasis on developing love to really balance the, to really balance the mind. And I'll share a little bit about my retreat because um, my five weeks were all loving-kindness practice. All metta practice. Have you ever done loving-kindness practice for a long time? How many have done it for at least a day? Okay, great. Some of you may be with me because I led a retreat here last summer on it. And I'll be doing another one at Spirit Rock um, next Saturday. So um, it's really interesting to have these phrases. We say, may, may, my phrases are, May you be happy and contented. May you be safe and free from harm. I, I should be able to remember them. I've been saying that. <laughs> May you be healthy and supported. 
May you be free and live with ease. And to say these over and over and over again. And you know what happened for me was really beautiful. First of all, the phrases become pervasive. So I'm sitting there just intending uh, that myself and others be happy. It's a very interesting state to be in for, you know, 18 hours a day. I mean, even comes in, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night to pee and the phrases are there. You know, I wake up. First step, may you be happy. <laughs> Going to the bathroom. And, and what's, what's also cool is that doing a long time, doing five weeks, they naturally kind of uh, form themselves into a rhythmic lullaby. So I was singing and being rhythmic. It developed when I was doing walking meditation and, and the, the, the phrases that we just repeat. And then, you know, some people say, just repeating phrases all day long, isn't that boring? Um, once you get into it, surprisingly little or surprisingly not boring. Um, and so I developed, it was, like, it was like saying a prayer over and over again, like saying a prayer in the form of a lullaby. And I really connected with all the different traditions where they do prayerful song and prayer and rhythm. And the sense of rhythm uh, developed first in the walking. So the, the metta would have a rhythm. It would just be almost like the shaman's drum. The first, I would, uh, the first beat, and I'd just be mm, right there. It's like the mind gets entrained by the rhythm. Some of you know this from dancing or from... Um, from uh, working, doing shamanic work. So it was really uh, wonderful uh, to do that. And this quality of the heart starts coming out, which is really the loving kindness practice is really the core practice that we do for developing the heart. And it's this wishing well for ourselves and others so that it becomes more and more pervasive so that it's there increasingly all the time even if it takes a little bit of remembering to do, so that we come with a basic approach of kindness to the world. It's like the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. What are you about? My religion is kindness. It's like taking a kind approach to every moment of experience. And we train with that, with metta, with the loving kindness practice, with the work with phrases. And then loving kindness or metta has its permutations because that open heart the wishing well heart, when it connects with suffering, becomes compassion. Because loving kindness develops the open heart. When it meets suffering, it becomes compassion. When that open heart meets things going very well, it becomes joy. You know, joy, general joy and a joy for others. And then when nothing particular is happening, it becomes equanimity and the sense of uh, balance, this balancing of, of, the, of the open heart with, with the wisdom qualities. And so it's this wishing well. I want to tell, tell you a story which I just heard a little while ago, which is a story which I think expresses the spirit of metta, her loving kindness, which we really cultivate. Because the most challenging place to develop loving kindness is <clears throat> with, our, with people who are difficult for us, whether right in our lives or in positions of political power or whatever. And this is a story that I heard about uh, Shirley Chisholm, who just died. Some of you may know her. She was the first African-American woman Congress, Congress person. And I actually met her a number of times because I worked in a previous lifetime, I worked in the US Congress. 
for a while. I was actually a congressional intern when I was in college, and during my college time, and I met Shirley Chisholm a number of times. She's a very small black woman, about five foot. And the story is that in 1972, she ran for president. She was the first African-American woman presidential candidate. She didn't win. <laughs> but she ran a campaign, and also on the campaign was George Wallace, who was an arch, at the time, an arch segregation, what do you say, segregationist, segregationalist, or you know what I'm saying. And he was, he was very militantly, uh, pretty, well, basically racist. You know? And he, during that campaign, some of you may remember, uh, he was shot by a would-be assassin. And he was in the hospital and Shirley Chisholm visited him. And the first words that George Wallace said were, your people aren't going to like this, that you're visiting me. And her response was, I wouldn't want what happened to you to happen to anyone. That's the spirit of metta. It's that wishing well. And she, that was a very... Um, very powerfully developed heart, very powerfully developed wisdom. And that's the spirit of metta. That's the spirit of the heart that can be there even in those kind of circumstances. It says, as a human, you know, I offer my open heart to every being, to every human being, and to other beings, knowing that we basically all want the same thing. We all want happiness and we all want peace, we all want to be, um, we all want in a way to be seen and recognized for the beautiful qualities we have. We want to be cared for. It's very simple in a certain way. And what metta does, what loving kindness, compassion do, is they cultivate that more strongly in us. Now, very interestingly, in my own experience, I have found that wisdom and compassion and love are wonderful, but there really is some, a third aspect that's needed. And this is I found from my own experience, and you can say it in different ways, that I found in my own experience that I could, I could be developing a lot of wisdom, I could be developing a lot of heart, and in some way I could not be fully grounded. And what that means is I could go into situations and I could kind of be knocked around. And so this third aspect of this core teaching has to do with being grounded, with being able to actualize in the world, with able, with able to take these teachings out there. And I, I centralized it under the notion of courage. And this I learned from a Vietnamese friend of mine who lives near here and teaches in, at the temple in San Jose named Venerable Minduk, who's a really a good friend of mine. And um, we work together a lot. And he told me, you know, I've been talking a lot with him over the years about the uh, forms, the way that Buddhism took shape in Vietnam during the war. And he told me that I think it was in either in the 50s or 60s, you know, when things were really, really intense, the Vietnamese Buddhists decided to change the core teachings and said, we have wisdom and compassion 
but we need a third aspect. And they officially said we have three core pillars for the Dharma, wisdom, compassion, and courage. Because we need courage at this time. We need courage to act. We need courage to be in the situation of war. And I love that. I love that addition, and it makes a lot of sense in terms of my own experience, because it's really that quality of, um, I think it has a lot to do with really being more fully in our bodies and being more fully in the world. You know, there's this wonderful line that I, that I um, remembered from a Mary Oliver poem. It's a poem some of you may know. I won't read the whole poem. It's a poem called When Death Comes. But I think it's really appropriate because each of us as bodies um, are immediately subject to fear, right? Because as a body, as a separate body, we are in a precarious situation. We will all die. We're all vulnerable. And fear is a very natural um, reaction, you might say. And fear is with us as long as we identify most fully with being separate. And death is the, you know, the, as it were, the uh, negation of our separateness, in a way. We think that, at least. And so Mary Oliver wrote this amazing poem called When Death Comes. I'll read it. Maybe I'll read this just to to end, because it it really is about this quality of courage and has this line. When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from my purse, from his purse, to buy me and snap the purse shut. When death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility, and I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular, and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence, and each body a lion of courage. That was the line that I was thinking of. Each body a lion of courage. Don't you like that? Each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. Thank you. we have some time for any questions or discussion, exclamations, spontaneous poetry. Um, If insight um, meditation is maybe the core of our wisdom practice and metta meditation is the core of our 
compassion or mm -hmm. loving kindness practice, then is there a practice that we have to develop courage? Mm. Great question. I actually had thought about that, and it's, some of it's in my notes, but I wanted to have discussion, so I cut it. <laughs> um, I think that there, there are a few core practices. I think a core practice, for me, related to courage, there's a way in which the wisdom dimension links up with, particularly with the mind and seeing our patterns of mind, seeing our, our um, experiential patterns really closely. There's a way in which the loving kindness practice links up with the heart. I think courage practice has a lot to do with really a grounding in the body. And in particular, I know in my own experience, I worked, um, I worked a lot with John Travis, who was like a teacher of the body. And I did practices over a lot of years where, like for two years, all I did was I was aware of the field of my own body as my meditation object. So I really kind of got a further grounding just in bodily presence. I spent another year and a half just keeping my energy in the belly, which is a martial arts technique. Some of you know um, the hara or the, you know. And I find that those, those kind of practices were very, very helpful and effective for actually going into action because it grounded me in the body. And in the hara, it, it's like the, I found like the grounding in the belly really complemented well the training in the heart and the training with the mind. And it led to a kind of groundedness and it's the, and this is pretty explicit in martial arts training, but if you, if you really ground here, it's kind of hard to be knocked around. But I found I could have, a, before that, I found I could have a really, really open heart and be pretty clear. And if I wasn't grounded here, I would be knocked around. So there's a way in which the, the um, a, a training in awareness of the body is, I, I think, linked, linked to the courage. And then, then uh, first of all, I think actually the whole practice is about courage because it takes a lot of courage to look at your own mind. You know. You know, we could say that in a humorous way. <laughs> I mean, it takes a lot of courage just to sit there and hang out. I mean, I, I, love, the, I love the line uh, that I, I learned from Gil. He, I don't know how often he uses it here, but it's a wonderful line. He said, if there was another person who was alongside us just repeating what we tell to ourselves all the time, we would find that person incredibly obnoxious. It was just, re <laughs> just repeating... And, you know, repeating the same thing 500 times. And what's so interesting about our own minds is that the fifth, 500th time, in some way, we find it just as interesting. <laughs> oh, yes, got to deal with that. And uh, so I think it takes a lot of courage to actually hang out with those 500 repetitions. And so in a way, all of the practice, it takes a lot of courage to see one's own heart and that which blocks the heart. But I, I think... I think it's that I would point to the body practices and then and then doing further practices to bring it out into the world to bring to to explore one's edge where where there's fear you know and to make that a a kind of a practice you know to you know I've uh, have friends who you know I, I mean I, I do this sometimes but I have friends who are teachers who work with people and say let's see a situation which is at your edge where fear comes up you know, in the real world, in the everyday world. And let's go into that with heightened mindfulness and heightened heart energy. That'd be a way, that'd be a way of practicing, which is really, I mean, some of you can probably do that, but it's really, 
It's really kind of exciting. It makes, it makes the ordinary encounter with one's boss fascinating. <laughs> I could tell some stories about that. Okay. Thank you. Please. Could you repeat again? You said when loving kindness meets, yeah, and those uh, marriages that you were yeah. About. I mean, this is this is a traditional understanding, which is that the the loving kindness energy or the loving kindness practice really, um, it's it's a fundamental method for opening the heart. There are other methods, you know. You can, uh, I think, it's the repetition which makes it uh, really key. I mean, one could, you know, we can listen to music, read books and it opens the heart, but we don't usually do that all day long, which is what we do when we do intensive metta practice. So it really is a kind of opening of the heart. And when the heart is open, just in its own element, without any disturbances, without any uh, fear, it, the finding that I, that I find in the teaching is that, that our natural uh, way of being is that of, of being loving of being warm and kind, and that when we're not scared or startled, that's who we are. This is, this is the, the teaching, that this is our core nature, and that we get covered over because of conditioning and fear and all sorts of stuff. And so if that's our core nature, when, uh, when nothing particularly is happening um, to, to scare us, and when there's not necessarily suffering around, we just manifest as kindness. But when we encounter suffering, either our own or others, that love very naturally becomes compassion. And when it finds something wonderful that's happening, it turns into joy. The heart just kind of sparkles. You know, it's like um, we go out and um, see the spring growth. And and something just opens in our hearts, you know. And then the the last is um, equanimity. And, and some of you may know that these four qualities are the traditional teaching called the divine abodes or the Brahma Vihara, which is which is, they're and they're taught together because equanimity, in a way, is the balance for the love, the compassion, and the joy. Because the danger of the love, the compassion, and the joy is that we get attached to outcomes. You know, oh, I want you to be happy. If you're not happy. Get happy, <laughs> you know, or, or, or compassion. You know, I, compassion is the feeling with the suffering, and the attachment can come in when we say, "Okay, I'm being compassionate, but get over it." <laughs> so, so I, right, you know, you get the idea, right? And so it's the equanimity which teaches that things are happening because of causes and conditions. Now we can intervene out of compassion, but there are limits to how we can change things. You know. So does that help some? Yeah, thank you. It looks like we maybe have time for, for one more question or, or comment. Please. Okay, I'm not I'm not okay. <laughs> 
not having the suffering kind of stick, if I can say that. Not having it stick, but having being aware of it, having it come through you, but not somehow having it stick in your body and stick in your emotions. And there are ways to do that. You know, there are ways to do that so that people can be with the suffering and, have, and not be closed, but not have it um, just be like some pitch, some gravel pitch or something that just covers you and covers you and covers you and suffocates you. So that's, so that's a really quick answer, but it's, it's workable. I, I've done a lot of those practices, and Joanna Macy's work would be a real key to looking further into that. And look at her books, and if you have time on the 27th, go hang out with her. So thank you. Thank you for the great question. So I'll just end with a, um, a short dedication of merit. So may the, may the fruits of this morning, whatever we've learned, whatever's been helpful, whatever insights there have been or inspirations or rededications or new understandings, may we dedicate the fruits of the morning And you may even want to dedicate the fruits of your practice and even the fruits of your life for the benefit, the awakening, the release from suffering of all beings. Thank you.